Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Church of the Cross. I'm going to pray real quick to uh, start our time together. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for this opportunity to proclaim your word to your people. I pray that you would um, be here by the power of your Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would open this word to our minds and our imaginations and fill our hearts. I pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may have a seat. Super glad to have you all worshiping here with us this morning. A special welcome if you're a guest. Quick announcements in Spanish, so bear with me for just one second. Si algunos de ustedes solo hablan español, hay una versión de esta sermón uh, escrita que está traducido a español y está en el, uh, el grupo de WhatsApp para nuestra iglesia. Okay, so uh, thank you for that. That's the end of the Spanish for this morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Warren Pagan. I'm one of the priests here at Church of the Cross, and it is a privilege to proclaim the Word of God to you this morning. It's a privilege especially for me to meditate with you this morning about the memory of this Samaritan woman. She is actually the first one privileged to, to be called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. We aren't accustomed, probably, to thinking about the Samaritan woman this way, and it may even be a jarring thought to some of us this morning. But I want to make the case this morning that if we just read the passage in its plain meaning, that conclusion is inescapable. Here in this passage, in John's telling, Jesus reveals his messianic identity to her before anyone else outside of a very small circle of people. The mother of God, Mary, John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples, and Nicodemus. And the way in which he tells her is very significant. He does so by revealing his divine identity to her. So when the scriptures were translated into Greek in the fourth through the first centuries before Christ, the name Yahweh from Exodus 3.14 was translated ego eimi ho'on, or I am the one who is. You ever heard someone refer to Jesus as the great I am? That's because Jesus regularly invokes this divine title for himself throughout the book of John. And this is the first time that he does so. Now, I'm not saying every time Jesus says, I am, he means he's saying he's God, right? It's not like, I'm hungry. Oh, you said he was God. Not like that. But the way that this sentence is constructed in this passage is unique enough that he is clearly saying that. This is the first of those invocations of, those, of that divine title that Jesus makes. And when the Samaritan woman and he have this conversation about the coming Messiah, Jesus does not straightforwardly say, I am the Messiah, or that's me. He says, I am the one who is speaking to you. See, that construction suggests what John is doing here is making a revelation of Jesus' divine identity to this Samaritan woman. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the Samaritan woman understood the divine identity that's embedded in Jesus' messianic claim there, what I am saying is that when John wrote this story down, he saw this particular detail of their conversation as particularly weighty and critical for his readers to know and understand. In other words, in the narrative that John is stating, this point really matters. Perk up, pay attention as you're reading this text. This is the first time Jesus is sort of being unveiled to the nations, as it were. So she goes back to her people and she tells them about Jesus saying, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And then in verse 39, it says that many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman's testimony. 
Now, again, this construction in John's gospel is very important because that word testimony is the same one that is used later when the apostles will bring the gospel to the lost sheep of Israel and to the ends of the earth. So just like Philip told Nathaniel in chapter one of of John's gospel, come and see, so the Samaritan woman goes to her people and says, come and see. Now, the fathers of the church, those theologians writing from the second until the fifth century, more or less, understood this woman to be a preacher of the gospel as well. And I think that's highly significant. Their testimony is very important to me because of what Christopher Hall calls their hermeneutical proximity to the apostles. What that means is that many of these theologians spoke Greek in an ancient form of Greek, similar to the language the New Testament was written in. I'm not saying they're always right, but I'm saying that when they speak, I listen closely. And here they confirm what I think is evident from the plain sense of the text. So John Chrysostom, who's the fourth century bishop of Constantinople, says this, she both heard and believed and netted others also. Now remember when Jesus calls Simon and Andrew to be his disciples, they were fishing and he calls them with a pun, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Chrysostom is saying that this woman too has learned to fish for people. Now, I think the clearest and most explicit example of this comes from the writings of Ephraim the Syrian. In fact, it's Ephraim who first alerted me to this way of reading the text and first persuaded me to read it this way. Ephraim was a deacon, a poet, and a hymn writer dedicated to helping the women of his city in ancient Edessa become literate so that they could read and study scripture. In fact, his ministry liberated so many women from the bondage of ignorance and illiteracy that he was called the Moses of women. He formed choirs of women and he wrote hymns for them to read and sing and his compositions directed their attention to female biblical saints for them to emulate. My son's middle name is Ephraim because I love this saint, this great saint of the church. The poem on the cover of your bulletin is one of his hymns. He says there that even though the apostles were forbidden to announce Jesus among pagans and Samaritans, your voice, O woman, first brought forth fruit, even before the apostles, with the kerygma. That word in Greek means the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She gave them, quote, the living bread, Ephraim says. You entered and revived your dead. Now, in that last line, this is incredibly striking to me. Ephraim's imagination is linking together the woman's entry into Sychar in Samaria and Christ's descent into the dead, into Sheol, to proclaim liberty to the captives there, as 1 Peter 3.19 teaches. Now, that's an incredibly bold artistic move, right? It's poetic, but it also shows you how much Ephraim valued this moment in Christ's ministry. Now, okay, you may or may not have found this lengthy introduction to the Samaritan woman as the first preacher of the gospel to be interesting. I will be charitable to myself and assume that you did find it interesting. But the question remains, of what relevance is this scholarly interpretation to those of us who sit here today who are wondering what text, what what relevance does this text have to the life that I'm living right now? How is the proclamation of the good news by this Samaritan woman good news for us sitting here in this congregation today? First of all, at Church of the Cross, we believe that when the kingdom of heaven comes near, women are released into ministry alongside of men. The gifts of the Spirit 
and the fruit of the Spirit are poured out onto women just as they are onto men. And as the prophecy of Joel, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Amen? Amen. The theologian Origen in the third century called Jesus the Basileia, which in Greek means the kingdom of God in himself. When Jesus begins to preach, he says, repent, change your mind, change your way of seeing and perceiving the world because, why? Anybody remember? The kingdom of heaven has come near. Whenever the gospels tell us about Jesus' relationships with women, we want to pay close attention because it's what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven comes near. When the kingdom of heaven comes near, women get restored, healed, and released in the kingdom of God with the power of the Holy Spirit. That is an unbelievably beautiful thing. It is a restoration of dignity. It is a restoration of creational parity in which the unique perspectives and potencies of both men and women are equally valued and lifted up. We live in the conditions of sin. We do not perceive the world rightly. We do not perceive the relationships between the genders rightly. We do not perceive the relationships between different people groups correctly. We have built false hierarchies. We have, we have imputed supremacy and inferiority where Jesus has said, no. When Jesus comes into this world, he comes, as Thomas Merton said, he comes into this world, this demented inn in which there is absolutely no room for him at all. And yet he comes, he breaks in. And the whole reason for the existence of the church this morning is it is the, it is the one space on this earth where we expect by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that Christ will come and bring and build his kingdom. And that kingdom is not of this world. It upends and it overturns the values and the expectations of this world. He brings that kingdom into our midst. That's what we long for. That's what we pray for. That's why we come every day or every week and we celebrate this liturgy. Because we hope and we expect and we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will be present here in word and sacrament and that his kingdom will take shape right here among us. He will come again into this end, which we all know is demented. He will bring healing and restoration and shalom and dignity. And one of the chief ways that we will know that it is happening is when women are lifted up and blessed and commissioned and released to be witnesses with the whole of their lives, their talents and their personalities alongside of men. We have to pray together that we would see this happening in our midst. Let's pray that God would let us see more of this. We've seen too much predation. We've seen too much domineering. We've seen too much competition. We've seen too much seduction happening between men and women. We want to see more non-predatory, non-threatening, non-competitive, non-seductive relationships between men and women. We want to see those things in the church because Jesus says that's what he promises for us. St. Paul had these kinds of friendships. His letters reveal the names of his female co-laborers in gospel ministry, especially in the final chapters of Romans and Philippians. 
We want to see men and women standing shoulder to shoulder, excitedly, joyfully, gratefully doing the work of the kingdom, giving testimony about who Jesus is, how he healed, how he has restored what sin and death and the devil had destroyed and taken away from us. But for that to happen, my friends, it requires repentance. Not just one time, but a lifetime of repentance. It requires positive things. It requires us to take on training and the dispositions of love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I'm going to let you finish the list because you know it. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That kind of repentance which enables life together is a gift of grace. We don't drum this up by our own willpower. We can't. We can't do it. But when this power by the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will say and others will say that the kingdom of God has come near. There will be rejoicing. We will say and others will say that this congregation has become a thin place, a porous space, a site where the mercy and the power of God are visible and tangible. Doesn't your heart long for that? That is the first way that the Samaritan woman is relevant to us this morning. But I think... There's a second way that the apostolic memory of this woman is relevant to us this morning. What Jesus did in this moment and what John did in writing down the story about Jesus were revolutionary acts. In his engagement with this woman, Jesus radically embodies the truth with a capital T. He is the truth of God enfleshed in a person. John's shorthand phrase for this throughout his gospel is light of the world. And because he is the truth, he transgresses and he profanes every corrupt way of thinking and every corrupt practice in the cultural milieu in which he was raised, while at the same time maintaining and lifting up and ennobling every truthful thing in his culture. He threads a needle. He does not, like a pendulum swing, crash back and forth between legalism and license. He threads the needle because he is the truth incarnate. Now, in Second Temple Judaism, as you probably know, and it actually says it right there in the text, Jewish people did not associate with Samaritans. They did not pass through Samaritan territory. They did not speak with Samaritans. They did not touch Samaritans. And likewise, men did not talk to women that they were not married to. Single men especially did not talk to women. Rabbis especially did not talk to women that they were not married to. And yet Jesus crosses every single one of those boundaries in this passage without anxiety, almost casually, completely unfazed by the possibility of contamination or pollution. All of these customs in Jesus' day were built around what the rabbis called fences around Torah. The law is holy. It must be kept. And so to be faithful to Adonai you encase the law with other laws so you never get anywhere close to violating it. So you don't engage with Samaritans because they practiced a debased form of Judaism. They didn't recognize any of the books besides the Pentateuch. They recognized the different temple on Mount Gerizim. Therefore, you don't associate with them. You don't talk to them. You don't enter into your territory because it might compromise the authenticity of your worship and your devotion to Adonai. Likewise, relationships between men and women are fraught. There are many temptations, temptations to domineer and seduce and manipulate. And because of that, you build a fence. 
No conversations between men and women outside of the marriage relationship. All of these things are in the realm of cultural wisdom. That's how they arise. They're in the realm of cultural wisdom or of custom. But they've taken on, in this instance, the force of law. And because of that, they have misshapen the relationships between Jews and Samaritans and men and women. They have created these distorted hierarchies, these false impositions of supremacy and inferiority of the people that God created. God did not create women inferior. God did not create Samaritans inferior. We are all made of one blood, the apostle says in Acts 17. And therefore, what humanity has divided and has created hierarchies of supremacy and inferiority, Jesus puts back together again. When we see Jesus transgress against these customs, against these these sort of uh, developments within culture around the question of wisdom, how do we engage in these relationships in a way that is going to keep us from violating the law? We see the force of what the North African bishop Cyprian in the third century wrote in a letter. Custom without truth is but the antiquity of error. Say it again. Custom without truth is but the antiquity of error. Therefore, he says, let truth conquer custom. Quoting the deuterocanonical book of First Estrus. Truth endures and grows strong to eternity and lives and prevails forever and ever. Now, among progressives in American culture, we're ready to whoop right now, right? Like, oh my gosh, that's right. Get rid of these archaic, oppressive practices and let everybody, everybody be free. You do you. <coughs> that's not the move Jesus is making here, though. It's like, you got to keep reading, right? <laughs> he names the sexual sin that has defined this woman's life. There is here also a call to repentance for her. A repentance that's rooted in a true and honest recognition of what has become of her life and which will allow her to change her mind and to change her course of action. The light of the world is exposing to the light of day all that is within her. But listen, it's not like others do. It is not for the purpose of shame or social control. In fact, this is the deepest form of compassion Jesus realizes that she is in bondage because of her decisions. She is alone. She is isolated. She's drawing water at the hottest part of the day because of the life she's been living. And the repentance that Jesus calls her into is what will actually release her into the freedom and the ministry that he has for her. This is a moment of supreme dignity. And speaking the truth to her, he is setting her free, a freedom a freedom to follow Jesus and a freedom to engage in this noble calling, this noble ministry to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the end of this story is that the word of her testimony is believed. These people who literally would not talk to her hear her testimony and they come running to Jesus. Now, here's what I think the Lord is doing this morning. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But here's what I think the Lord is doing this morning. He is coming to us just as he came to the Samaritan woman. Jesus wants to liberate you and me into the fullness of life that only he possesses. He wants to give us the living water, that is, life nourished by God that only he possesses. 
Ezekiel and Zechariah prophesy a coming day of the Lord when this living water will literally spill out like a bubbling spring or even like a river from Jerusalem's temple, entering the Dead Sea in the east and the Mediterranean in the west. But that living water has come in Jesus, who is the true temple. He is the site of the concentrated presence and glory of God. But he is not an inert building. He is a person. And today, my friends, he lives and he reigns at the right hand of God and he has poured out his spirit upon you and upon me so that we too might be temples of the living God. There is no cultural boundary. There is no custom that will keep truth with a capital T from finding you and me. In his mercy, no sin will go unexposed and hidden. Remember what he says in the Gospel of Matthew. Everything hidden will be revealed. That's not a threat. That's a promise of liberation and release. He will do that for us so that you and I can be liberated, so that we can be released into the mission that God has for us, just like this Samaritan woman. There was an ancient Greek myth about Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus was the son of Apollo, who's the god of music and poetry. And it was said that his voice had such sweetness that no one could resist his melodies. Now, this image of a, of a gentle man with a voice so sweet that he could tame the wildest beast and the human heart really appealed to the early Christians. And they had this image of Jesus as Orpheus all over the catacombs. And the third century Christian philosopher, Clement of Alexandria, says that Christ's song is able to tame the most intractable of animals, the human being. There's a song that Christ knows how to play for you and me this morning to disarm us, to make us his own so that we can be liberated, so that we can be released. There is good news this morning because Jesus has stopped at nothing to find us. He was willing to get up on the cross so that the looming threat of death could have no more power over us. He was raised on the third day so that you and I could know, just like St. Paul says, that death's dominion is no longer universal. There is one who holds the keys to death and Hades. And he did it so that we could live vivified and resurrected lives, so that we could experience his Holy Spirit power here and now, so that we could experience restored relationships and partnerships between men and women, so that we could be healed and restored from sin now. And so all glory be to Jesus, because he has shown us the Father's heart for us. He has shown us the way home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.